Welcome to the podcast, Inside Out. If this is your first time joining us, this is a story that you've arrived in the middle of. It's best to start at episode one. This is season two, My Life Inside a Federal Prison Camp. Season one is the truth is the first victim. And it would be best if you started season one, episode one, and worked your way through. New episodes drop every Sunday. We're so glad you're here. This is Inside Out. I'm your host, James Catledge. Welcome aboard. I guess I'd been at TAF for probably a couple of weeks, and I'm out there shooting baskets on the basketball court, and one of the Hispanic inmates says to me, hey, look, you should be on the outspoken team. And I said, what, what is the outspoken team? He said, well, we've got a traveling group of speakers who leaves camp and goes and talks to the local high schools in Kern County, Bakersfield and the surrounding cities. And Taft is one of the cities. And, and we leave here. And, uh, you know, one of the highlights, as he expressed it, was we eat normal food while we're out there. And that, that, you know, that, did, that did pique my interest. We're, we're really uh, we're eating bad food in there. I mean, bad food. Just the, the meat was all like pellets, the same exact dimensions. Used to, they use a spoon to ladle those out and put them on your tray. The trays all have indentations on them. And, and when they put the meat, it's supposed to be beef, it, it literally looks like dog food. And so all of us were scared to eat it. We thought it may actually be dog food. But the outspoken team... Uh, and I think the name came from being out of prison and speaking, outspoken. And it was, it was similar to the old program, Scared Straight, where you go talk to kids about making good decisions, making wise decisions, and, and, uh, and, and maybe the decisions you made that got you into a federal prison. And maybe we can help these kids, uh, you know, make choices that would make sure they don't have that experience. Well, this, this great guy, very dynamic uh, fella, he, he, he's really pushing me to get on this team. And he has no idea that I've been public speaking for 20 years at this point. He has no idea that I've spoken in front of thousands of people, um, not, not about criminal conduct, but, but about success and leadership and financial planning and, you know, all sorts of things that I, I became uh, pretty good at. So, I said, that sounds really appealing, especially the part about leaving here. Uh, and so I said, who do I need to talk to about it? He said, well, the, the inmates make the decision about who's on the team. But one of our counselors, Mrs. Mann, is she, she happens to be my counselor, too. Mrs. Mann is, is in charge of the outspoken team. She's the one who arranges with the schools. She's the one who talks with the principal and arranges, uh, you know, the different venues for us to go speak at. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll mention that Mrs. Mann and she and I are getting along fine. Uh, she, she's really a good woman. She reminds me of Aunt B on the show, the Andy Griffith show. Uh, you know, Andy's aunt who lived there with with Opie and Andy in their home in Mayberry. Uh, Mrs. Mann is a lot. She's from Bakersfield and she's been there since they opened the place. And she's just a sweet caring lady she i probably have seen her cry 15 times she cares about us 
which is really great. And, and I, from what I understand, it's, it's unusual. Uh, and again, I've only been in there a couple of weeks. So I approach her, knock on the door, and she says, what do you need, Catledge? You know, she's giving me a bit of a hard time here for bothering her. I said, well, I, I want to ask you about the outspoken team. What do you want to know about the outspoken team? I said, well, how does it work? And, and can I get on it? She said, well, the inmates make the decision, the guys that are on the team. And what you need to do is prepare a speech about how you ended up in federal prison. It needs to be no more than four minutes. And you need to present it to the inmates that are on the team. And this is, you know, this is kind of nerve wracking, right? Because I'm sure their stories are wild. I'm sure these guys have some wild stories. People are in there for all different reasons. I said, is it possible for me to attend an outspoken meeting here? Because uh, they, they, they meet once a week and kind of go through the schedule and what the upcoming uh, speeches are going to be, which high schools are headed to, and more importantly, uh, practicing their speeches in front of each other. Uh, fine-tuning them, getting real candid feedback. I mean, like, hey, that was terrible. You got to do that again. I mean, real candid feedback. Nobody holds back inside prison. Everybody just lets you have it. So uh, I said, well, I'd love to attend. She says, yeah, why don't you come to the next one? I'll go to the next one. And man, these guys are good. They are so good at speaking. And their stories are compelling. I mean, it's emotional listening to their stories. And one of my favorite guys, Dunn, D-U-N-N, and again, I'm not going to use his last name. Dunn and I are still close today. Uh, Dunn has been in there the longest, and his story is so good. He is such a gifted speaker, so gifted, so uh, sincere and authentic, and the story is really riveting. And, and I just loved it. And I thought, you know, i got some work to do. Uh, I, I may be comfortable talking in front of a crowd, but this is a whole other subject matter. And so Later that day, I asked Dunn, I said, Dunn, I actually have a problem with telling a story to a bunch of high school kids about some crime I committed. Uh, my situation's a little different. You know, as all of you know, it's a little different. I'm not comfortable standing up for a high school kid saying uh, I stole a bunch of money when I did not steal a bunch of money. I'm just not comfortable doing that to get on some team. He says, well, tell me the whole story. So I'll tell him the whole story. He says, all right. He goes, uh, let me talk to Miss Mann about it. So they talked to Miss Mann and Miss Mann and Dunn. And Dunn's kind of like the captain of the team uh, for the inmates. He's the go-to guy, and he, as he should be. I mean, he really is great at this. So Dunn and Miss Mann make the decision that the subject matter of my speech needs to be about choosing uh, better associations, better partners, better friends. Basically, I'm going to talk about how I chose, uh, you know, from childhood all the way through, how I was careful about my friends and my associations. But then when I got into business, I, I, I somehow dropped my guard and, and got into business with a guy that had different character than I did, different values that I did. And I didn't think it mattered. I thought I was enough to hold it together. And I think a lot of kids think that. So we end up, this is their suggestion. Why don't you do it around choosing good friends, peer pressure, that kind of thing. And so I end up taking about a week. I mean, this was really hard to think this through. I came up with a what I consider to be a good speech that would be exactly four minutes. I was timing it over and over and over again. And uh, I'm in a cell by myself, so I'm just using my, my little watch that I've purchased from commissary to literally take it off and time it while I do the speech. And I do it out loud so that uh, – I literally have a good runtime on it. 
And then I said, Dunn, I went over to Dunn. Dunn lives in a different housing unit. So I went over to Dunn's housing unit. I said, listen, I think I got this thing ready. And I'll never forget this. This is a good memory for me. Dunn says, let me go get Jimmy. Jimmy's also on the team. And he, he, he likes Jimmy's judgment on these speeches. They take me into the mop closet. Now, I'm telling you, the mop closet. So we shut the door. There's all these mops that they use, the orderlies use to clean the bathrooms and clean the housing units, mops and brooms and dustpans and Clorox and uh, all, all sorts of chemicals. We're literally in the mop closet. Now, I've done speeches in the MGM Grand in front of 15,000 people. I've been paid lots of money to do lots of speeches, and it just it just dawned on me. We, we have shut the door, me and two other inmates, all dressed identical, three different backgrounds, done is uh, Samoan and uh, Jimmy is Mexican. And then I'm of course, Caucasian. And here we are three different races, door shut in the broom closet, the mop closet. And I do my speech. Now it took a second to pull myself together to get beyond the irony of being in the mop closet. But I give the speech. They literally, the two guys, they clap at the end of it. And, and I just feel, I mean, almost emotional that, this, this is so I, I can't quite express the feeling I had, but it, it just felt good. It just felt good. This was this was not a paid speech. This was a speech I really wanted to deliver speech. I really cared about. I wanted to go over well. I wanted to be received well in these two men's opinions. I really respect. So in that mop closet on that evening, these guys gave me the uh, the endorsement. And then they said, listen, don't change a thing. Don't change a doggone thing. You need to do this for all the guys on the outspoken team at our next uh, class. So that comes up in a week. I do it. Uh, they, they clap. Some stand. Some stay seated. But uh, basically, it was received very well. First take. The first time I did it. And that's not normal. Typically, the new guys take three or four takes and maybe three or four weeks of three or four takes getting the feedback. Well, this was one take. Uh, Dunn and, and Jimmy made me feel comfortable with what I delivered. So I just confidently delivered it. Then they ask you to leave the room while they vote. So I literally leave the room and I'm staying, I, I, I bet I'm out there 10 minutes in the hallway. This is the hallway where visitation is. They call it camp control. It's that area I walked through the day I checked into camp. Uh, so this is like a multi-purpose room. Well, this is where our outspoken meetings are. Well, they bring me back in and they've all decided to have these uh, sourpuss faces on and uh, and basically kind of trick me. And they, they say, listen, it, it, you know, you're too polished. It's, uh, you know, they give me, you know, one of them speaking and they, they, they take a long time to spoof me and tell me that uh, I'm going to need to really, you know, change things a lot. And I'm going to need to probably have several sessions in there with them. It's just too smooth. It's too, you know, they're going on and on and on. And then finally, one of them breaks up laughing. I said, we're kidding. It's perfect. Don't change a thing. We want you on the team. And it just felt so great. Not, not only am I going to get out of there, but these guys whose opinions I totally care about, these inmates from all these different backgrounds, I'm on the team. And we're going we're gonna to travel as a team and make a difference for these kids. And so in an upcoming episode, I'm going to actually do 
nice beats for you so you hear it. This is Inside Out Season 2, My Life Inside Federal Prison. I want to tell you what happened after I left the outspoken class that day, where now I'm on the team. Also in the class that same day is Mrs. Mann, a bunch of the correction officers, including Grantham, the gentleman who drove me in his little pickup truck back to camp on day one, who was concerned, you know, that I was nervous and uh, sends me off on my way. But he's in there, you know, and, and I've since come to learn in the first few weeks that he's the senior correction officer at the camp and he rotates back and forth between the low and the camp. And he's really a sincerely good guy. Uh, he has shared with me that his daughter is attending the same college that I went to. Uh, and there's a rule uh, inside federal prison that correction officers nor any of the staff can touch an inmate. They can't shake your hand. They can't give you a high five. They can't give you a hug. They're not permitted to touch you. It's just against the rules. And uh, so you kind of get used to no touch, which is really tough. It means visitation is going to be your only time where you have human contact. If you can imagine it, all of you, including myself, have not experienced the lack of human contact in such a stark way before. But it is happening here, and it's uh, happening all across the United States for 157,000 incarcerated people in federal prison. So I leave the outspoken meeting that day. I walk out with a couple of my buddies. I think Don is with me, and he's congratulating me and telling me what a good job I did. And, and then I think I've got another fellow with me, and we're headed back, just kind of back to our housing unit. And I'm only back there a few seconds when Grandpa pokes his head into my cubicle. He goes, you got a minute? And he steps in. And this is very unusual. He steps into my housing unit, extends his hand, and then pulls me in, honestly, and gives me like a bear hug. And I'm, I'm emotional explaining this because I know how outside the box this is. And he says to me, I need my daughter to hear that story. He goes, that was amazing. He goes, I... Um, I hope to be able to travel with you guys when you go out to these high schools. He goes, but I just wanted you to know that was an amazing story. I was so, so impressed by the way you delivered it and, frankly, the message behind it. He says, I need my family to hear it. He goes, you're, you're a good dude, man. And I just wanted you to know that. And so he, you know, crossed the line, basically, and uh, extended, you know, that human contact. And it just meant everything. And so from that from that day forward, you know, he and I had a special relationship and, and I knew I could count on him if I needed something or if I needed to ask if something was accurate or something was true or if some rumor had any validity to it. it it's really important that you develop some sources inside, whether it be from the warden's office, whether it be through your counselor who can get on the Internet or whether it be somebody like Grandpa who, who becomes a friend who's also a correction officer. So anyway, Grantham becomes a dear friend, and I, I thought you should know that that's how that, that story ended. This is Inside Out with James Catledge, Season 2. I promised you in an earlier episode that I would 
discuss in detail the actual speech that I gave while on the traveling team at Taft. That team uh, traveled to high schools all over Kern County, which is just north of Los Angeles. And uh, the idea was that the local high schools in that county would invite federal prison inmates on this traveling team in for a student rally. And uh, those of us on the team would communicate in a five to eight minute speech. Maybe lessons learned from our experience that got us into prison, hoping that we could nudge the kids, you know, into making good choices. And of course, high school kids are quite impressionable and very much set in their ways. And so the, the, the hope was that our speeches could inspire them to maybe not find himself in federal prison. I think that was the idea. So my speech, uh, which I was very concerned about because most of the guys are speaking about crimes they committed and the, and the, the, the daunting nature of the crimes and the, the, the devastation to the families and, you know, all, all the things that, that go with uh, committing crime. And of course I'm in a little different situation. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm not unique to this, but I'm in a situation where uh, I've got to I've got to be very careful about number one telling the truth to high school kids, and number two making sure I don't uh, embellish uh, a scenario that did not exist. So that's that's the fine line I'm walking here, and so I I chose to basically cover a story from my past. And, uh, and then, and then briefly cover how I ended up in federal prison, the choices I made that got me there. And I, I, I think you'll find that the story would resonate with, with, um, anybody, not just high school kids. So, uh, remember this story had to be approved by the inmates, the, 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 the inmates themselves vote on what, number one, if you're on the outspoken team and number two, the inmates on that team get to decide whether you travel with them. Uh, from week to week. And so it's kind of like a, a head captain. And then there's kind of like a, a committee. And uh, I had zero experience on this team and I had zero seniority on this team. I'm a new guy doing time in a federal prison with guys who've been around a while who've been doing this a long time. And so it was a real privilege for me to number one, be selected to be on the team. And number two, to be invited to go shoulder to shoulder with them and tell our stories. And then have a shot at making a difference with these kids. What was really cool about it is we would board the bus uh, outside the prison in our our outside clothes, which were only worn outside. We had a specific shirt with the logo of Outspoken on it, which I had tailored so it fit me perfectly. Uh, Specific pants that were designed to be outside and then shoes that were only worn when we went outside the facility. So I felt dressed up. You know, we all look the same, but I felt dressed up. And I'll post a picture on the Instagram account for Inside Out with James Catledge so you can actually see the whole outspoken team. We did we did a team photograph before they closed uh, Taft. And uh, I, I love this picture because it reminds me of my friends who were all, you know, so dedicated to this this work with the, with the high school kids. So. I'm going to give you the speech. When, when we when we get in the van and head to the high school, we're we're all very high energy and we're very excited to be 
outside the prison. We're very excited to be invited in and have a shot at the minds and hearts of these kids. So we pour typically into a gymnasium. We're each given a microphone. We're all filled with nerves. I mean, it's nerve wracking. So I don't care if you've ever spoken publicly before, and I've had a chance to speak publicly quite a bit, but still, everybody's filled with nerves. You just want to come across right. You want, you want to make the impression you hope to make, and then you hope your words resonate. And then at, after the speeches, kids get a chance to ask questions. And some come up to you and ask the questions because they're a little shy about doing it on a microphone, and some do it on the microphone in front of the whole auditorium. But either way, we're there to answer questions. And then afterwards, we meet with the teachers, typically in the dining hall, and have a real nice lunch that's been prepared by these teachers, or maybe it's the cafeteria food from the school. But any, either way, it's a huge treat for us and just a great experience. So this is my speech. I was eight years old when my dad sat my little brother and I down in our bunk bed to let us know he was leaving. In my mind, I knew that I now needed to protect my mom and be an example to my little brother. We were a very religious family. My mom had two major rules. Rule number one, no drinking, smoking, and of course, no drugs. Rule number two, she would have the final say on who our friends would be. I grew up afraid that if I broke either of those rules, it could destroy what was left of my family. So I literally adhered to those rules all the way through school, went away to college, still adhered to those rules, actually went on a mission for my church, adhering to those same two rules. Mom did terminate several friendships. It was that important to her that I had the right friends. After finishing school, I ended up working as a financial advisor. This was my dream job. I was learning why some people were rich and some people were poor. The rules of money and how money works had become my career. After three quick years working for a company, I decided to marry my girlfriend, Tiffany, and start a family. We decided also at that same time I should start my own business. I wasn't so good working for others. I had a passion for the money business, and that passion spilled over to me building a financial firm that eventually operated in 33 states, all provinces of Canada, and at its peak had over 1,100 licensed financial advisors working for us. We were able to build our dream home. The company actually had a corporate plane and pilots. We kept having kids, and they too were living the American dream. We were making more money than I ever dreamed of. My little brother worked for our firm as well. My mom had moved down to the city of Las Vegas to be near the grandkids. I was feeling pressure to expand the business, add more creative products, to help families build and grow their net worth. We were adding solutions for both our clients and advisors. At the age of 35, I did something that was completely unnecessary and violated one of the fundamental rules I had grown up with. I added a partner who my mother would have never approved of as a friend. This new partner was greedy. This new partner had a cocaine addiction. 
This new partner shared with me a vision of building luxury hotels in the Caribbean, which I had no experience in. We would be partners. I would direct my firm's clients to an investment that he would both manage and build. The clients would win. We would win as a firm. And of course, my advisors would win. Five years into the partnership, he let me know he was out of money and that I needed to send him more money. I knew in my gut he had stolen the money. Since I'm his partner and my clients relied on me and this investment, the government got involved. The FBI investigated. They determined that we were both guilty. I fight this guilty accusation for 10 years. When the judge finally brings her gavel down in the courtroom, she sentences me to five years in federal prison. Guess who was sitting in the courtroom? That's right. My mom and my little brother. They were devastated. The kid who since eight years of age had kept it all together was now headed to prison. I'm now in the middle of serving that prison sentence. The lesson I want you to take away from my story is this. Number one, you can live the American dream and should. Number two, alcohol and drugs harm your mind. Number three, you never outgrow your mom's advice. Number four, you must choose great friends throughout your life. Number five, good choices always matter, not just in your youth, but on through your adulthood. Number six, no success, no opportunity is worth compromising your principles. That's my story. Thank you for listening. I look forward to your questions. This is Inside Out with James Catledge, season two, my life inside federal prison. Thanks for being here. Well, I really can't believe it, but somehow two months has already gone by and uh, it has gone by so fast. And I'm keeping track of this with a weekly blog that I send back to my kids. And a lot of you, a lot of my friends are receiving this. It's trying to chronicle the experience. This is one of the tips Michael Santos gave me. He says, chronicle everything. And this will be the memories you keep of this experience. And it can be very positive if you'll you'll record the memories that are positive. And so I did that. It's been great. But it's it's been a couple of months. And it's time to, believe it or not, say goodbye to Johnny Walker. He's headed home. In these last few days, we've walked the track and discussed life on the outside. Remember, he's been in six years. They call it being down. He's been down six years. And Johnny's a good guy, good heart, really passionate guy, just fiery. Like we, we had many, uh, I don't want to say arguments because we, neither one of us get heated, but, but where I need to stand my ground with him. And that's because Johnny, like me, uh, you know, we, we, if we have an opinion or if you're encroaching on our personal boundaries, we're, you know, you're going to, you're going to hear about it. And so we both that way. And so we had, you know, he was, he was, I, I share with you one of the experiences. I was hanging out with another couple of guys and Johnny 
uh, had begun to isolate himself to the relationship between he and I. And it was, uh, I don't want to say exclusive. That sounds a little strange. He had other friends, but we were spending a lot of time together. And I think he was a little jealous of, of these new friendships I was establishing. And so I had to let him know that I was a grown man and that I would be picking my own friends. And that as much as I really valued, and I really did, valued his heads up and his, his concern for me and his advice and guidance, I would be selecting my friends. And then I know he wanted me to have a good experience. And so he was trying to prepare me before he went. And I got to tell you, that last day was tough. As we walked the track, we talked about cell phones. We talked about an Apple phone and what that was. Think about it. The guy had been in since the iPhone. Okay. So we talked about Google. We talked about a Google search. We talked about Facebook. And these things existed, but weren't really as common as they were by the time I went in. And so th these were all, you know, conversations we were having. And I just was, I, it had shifted where I was trying to reassure him that he was going to be successful and that it's going to all work out and that people loved him and people cared about him and that he was going to do just fine because of who he was as a person and that he was attractive, meaning people were attracted to him like a magnet. And I had met the lady. He was going to go home. You have to be released to somebody when you go home. And he was being released to a lady, a lady friend. And she was just a friend, you know, a monogamous friendship and uh, a platonic friendship, I think is the right word, where uh, they're just friends. And so I had met her and, and you know, we, we were having discussions about making sure that it stayed platonic and all of this type of thing. And, and, and as nightfall came and it was time to say goodnight. I mean, it was kind of a, a long good night. And I said goodnight to him, walked right down to my cubicle, and I set my alarm for 4 a.m. when I knew they would come get him. Because when they come and get you, they come and get you in the middle of the night, and they kick your bunk with their boots. That's literally they do it. And then they put their flashlight in your eyes because they can't touch you. So they have to get you to wake up. And so this is what they do to wake you up. And so I, I was kind of, I had my alarm set for to be there because I want to help him carry his boxes up front and really say goodbye. And that, when, when you have a friend inside and they're going home, it is emotional. It's sad. It's, it's kind of like goodbye, maybe forever, right? Like, and he meant a lot to me. He, he helped me get started. He helped me feel safe and secure in this new environment. He, you know, indoctrinated me in a way that made me feel safe. And anyway, it was just sad. So my alarm goes off. I go check on him. He's already kind of shuffling around, getting his boxes together. And he's got two he's carrying up front, and I've taken one of them off the stack, and I follow him up to camp control with these boxes. And, and I'm just telling him how grateful I am for him. And um, as he goes up front, uh, he goes out that main door back into that parking lot where I entered two months ago, and it's goodbye. And I, I have to leave the box there. I'm not allowed to leave camp control. But I say goodbye and I give him a big hug. I let I let him know I loved him and that I cared about him, and and um, and I hope to see him again one day. And so as I walk back those lonely 142 steps back to the A unit, still in the dark of night, I thought, all right, uh, I'm on my own now, and I've got new friends and I've got relationships. And Johnny Walker, my security guard, my uh, my uh, you know 
protector, the guy that was there to kind of make sure things were smooth for me the moment I stepped into the A unit, the greeter is gone now. And so I began my journey in the 61st day anew. So that's it. This is Inside Out with James Catledge. Goodbye to Johnny Walker.